Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, has anything changed after the first official debate among contenders for the Conservative leadership? The greatest mistake we all could make as Canadians is to take this country for granted. And of all the things you've named on this stage at colleagues, none of them can be addressed unless there is a national Conservative government that includes Alberta at the table. That's what is the most important threat, our national unity. The Liberals announce funding to expand access to abortion services. What we're talking about is improving and ensuring access uh, for the rights that people already have. Uh, as I've always said, we will stand up and ensure that uh, women's rights are always protected in this country. And with the Ontario Progressive Conservatives leading in the polls one week into an election campaign, leader Doug Ford continues to take aim at his Liberal rival. You had your opportunity. And you failed. You were the Minister of Transportation. You didn't build absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's Thursday, May the 12th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. So last night's federal conservative leaders debate uh, drew a a lot of attention. There was a lot of reaction uh, to the format, uh, to some of the questions. There was a kind of a a round of questions about what TV shows people were binge watching and what musical artists they liked. So that that got some attention. Um, There was the use of paddles at one point, which people found interesting. But obviously, the the substance of the debate is is what we want to focus on. And and there was there was a lot of talk about different issues. And and uh, the perceived front runner, Pierre Poiliev, talked some more about the Bank of Canada. Uh, He's he's had he's made several attacks on the Bank of Canada over the course of this leadership race. So what are your thoughts on on all of that? Well, in order, I mean, I think the the, the uh, questions about personal preference on books and movies and whatever, I mean, it is trivial to some extent, but I do think people want to know who these people are, and this gives them a bit of a more rounded picture, so I don't think it's completely wasted. The only thing I think we, we learned was, was the confirmation that uh, Pierre Poilier is positioning himself as the anti-establishment candidate. Um, he says that he would... Uh, fire the, the Bank of Canada's governor if elected prime minister, which uh, which is entirely within his remit if he was prime minister. You know, the, the bank governor is appointed by the government. Uh, the mandate is set by the government. But, but Jean Charest's response was kind of interesting that he said, you know, if you're an investor looking to come to Canada and you hear that kind of statement coming from a member of the House of Commons, you think you're in a third world country. We can't have any, we cannot afford to have any leader who goes out there and deliberately undermines the confidence in institutions. And I think that that is the nub of the the argument. I, I, you know, I do think that Poiliev was, was warned by some of his supporters that he'd gone too far last week, that he had to tone it down. It does seem that he's heeded that to some extent. But obviously this is still a campaign that is trying to appeal to people who want to overturn the status quo. And I think in the inside the Conservative Party, there are a lot of them, and that's why he's the front runner. And he's you know, he's identified himself as the agent of change. Um, quite how you can be an agent of change if you were a, a junior minister in the previous government and you've been a career politician all your life is I guess for them to, his supporters to reconcile. Yeah. But but he is appealing to this this group 
who want to, to overturn everything. And to, to do so, he has to undermine what's there already. And I think that's extremely dangerous. I mean, I think that's exactly what Trump did in the U.S., was undermine institutions, and it created mayhem. Do we really want Gia Poiliev to be setting interest rates? You know, I think there's a reason why central banks around the world are independent. That's because the experience of having politicians set interest rates for their own political ends did not end well. And just a final point, I think that while the, the um, number of people who want to overturn the status quo in the Conservative Party is probably pretty high, in the general population, I think it is much less high. And that's going to present a huge problem. Because he pivoted to a point where he now supports institutions and, and supports the establishment. That seems very hard to do. But I remember talking to David Coletta, who's at, at Amicus Data, the polling firm, and he split Canadian society into four groups. Progressive professionals who are doing well, they make up about 15% of the population. The secure middle who are happy with the status quo, they account for about 40% of the population. Anxious progressives who are worried about their future, that's 27% of the population, and anxious conservatives who don't see themselves represented in the decision-making class and account for about 21% of the voters. You know, a good chunk of those are, were obviously conservative voters. Some might have been EPC voters. But you can see my point from that, that if you could, while you can win the Conservative Party by, by persuading the people who are not in favour of the status quo, it's much harder to persuade the secure middle that your agenda is what the country needs. And I right. think that's that's in his future if he wins. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the perhaps the point that some people defending Poiliev would make or some people on his team would make is that his job right now is not to win the next federal election. His job is to win the leadership. And then he's got potentially, if this NDP liberal deal holds up, he's got a couple of years to figure out how to win the next election, right? That's the... That's, that, that's right, and I think that that's very much in his favor because at some point, um, you know, 10 years in, any government starts to look stale. So, yeah. you know, if he uh, if he can persuade people to forget what he said in the, in the leadership campaign, but, but we've already seen with Aaron O'Toole that, you know, you, it comes back to bite you. Sure. And, but I guess the argument would be that old rule about how governments lose elections uh, and it's not that the opposition wins them. You just, at, the, at a certain point, somebody is, is going to be hanging around and, yep. and the government's going to have its time and, and that, that other person by default becomes the prime minister. And maybe that's the... Uh, yeah. uh, absolutely. And, I'm, and, you know, in no way am I saying Pierre Poilievre can never become prime minister because... If he, you know, by and large, conservative leaders have a pretty good record of becoming prime minister sooner or later. Yeah. Conservatives, you know, I think I calculated once they, you know, 14 of them would become prime minister at one stage or another over the country's history. So, you know, it's, yeah. it, anything is possible, but I don't think it's particularly healthy, a healthy development to, to position yourself as, uh, to play on the civic ignorance, which we know exists in society, uh, you know, Promise to solve difficult problems with simple solutions if only you are given the power to do so. And I think Trump made that uh, those promises, and, and uh, I think you know there might be buyer's remorse among a lot of people in the U.S. <laughs> Maybe not. Right, but but Pierre Poilievre would look at that and say, "Yeah, Donald Trump got elected, right?" And that's the yeah. that's the that, yeah. that might well, be the I criteria. Mean, so anyway, for sure, yeah. 
just wanted to touch quickly on a on a story about how the Liberals are expanding access to abortion services in Canada, and and the the public announcement about this obviously is directly tied to how this issue is playing out in the United States right now, and uh, and I think the government is is trying to say that the issue is resolved in Canada, and that and that we're not going to have the same kind of debate or discussion. Uh, in this country, it, it it did come up in the debate last night. Uh, where there was a question about it to the conservative leadership candidates. Um, but do you accept that idea that the issue is resolved in this country, and that, as the health minister said yesterday, the only real problem right now is just making sure people have access to services? Well, I don't think it's resolved. I mean, I think what we're going to see in the U.S. is is uh, it's not a precursor to what happens here. I mean, there's certainly going to be renewed enthusiasm among the supporters of uh, banning abortion. In fact, the, the, the annual anti-abortion rally uh, is on Parliament Hill today. I would imagine it's going to attract... It, it's always a big big demonstration. I suspect that this year will be bigger than ever because the, uh, the anti-abortion groups like Campaign Life Coalition are going to be emboldened by what's happening in the US. You know, obviously, it's a very different political system and... You know, we're a long way from a, a repeal of Roe versus Wade in Canada or an equivalent of we don't have a law in Canada. So, you know, I don't think there are imminent changes, but obviously the the uh, the debate, which had seemed to be settled for a long, long time, has been, has been sparked into life. I mean, it was quite interesting that most of the main challengers among the Conservative Party said that they would not legislate on this. Which I guess must, must give some comfort for the, the people who uh, want to see the status quo prevail. Yeah. All right, John. I know you've been following the Ontario election this week, and um, and even going door to door with candidates. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting uh, for for those people who live in Ontario. I think there are also some lessons uh, for Canadian politics in this. Doug Ford, according to the opinion polls so far, and and many of the experts that I've heard from seems in a position to get reelected. Things could change in the next three weeks until Election Day. Uh, but um, it's interesting that the progressive conservatives in Ontario are doing really well right now, but the federal conservatives are not. And I know there is a pattern in Canadian politics that when one party's in power in Ottawa, there's typically a different party in power in Ontario. Um, but but it is interesting that the Doug Ford's brand of, of progressive conservatism is working while the the federal conservatives have been struggling in Ontario in the last couple of elections. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of defies logic that, that people who recoil at the thought of the, the federal conservatives quite comfortably vote for Doug, Doug Ford. I mean, it is a different brand of conservatives. It's conservatism. It's folksy kind of... Uh, he seems to be invulnerable at the moment. I mean, his team have got him in a bubble so that he doesn't say anything stupid and blow it. But he, the, the debate took place in North Bay on, uh, on Tuesday. That's why I, why I came up here. And he came out pretty unscathed. It seems to me the Liberal Party, which was really fighting for its life, it still doesn't have official party status at Queen's Park, down to seven MPPs. But it does seem to have been rebuilt under its uh, its new leader, Stephen Del Duca. Uh, he seems to be a sensible, reasonable alternative to Ford. It's a long way from seven MPPs to, to government, but uh, but his goal, I think, will be to, to 
to beat the NDP into second place. The NDP, uh, Andre Horbath is the, the leader for the fourth election. It didn't seem to me from the debate that she's going to make the breaks through, the, through this time. And in fact, most polls have the, the NDP in, in third place. So at the moment, it's uh, it's Doug Ford's on cruise control uh, back into government. The, the election's in early June. But obviously, you know, events can blow up. Today there was a story about the ed- education minister taking part in a, a slave auction when he was a student. Uh, another minister was uh, subsidised by her riding association, even though she's on a, a minister's salary. Now, these things w- will accumulate. What I would suggest, though, is that you know, majority governments tend to get a second crack at things unless they yeah. become so arrogant and out of touch that... Uh, that uh, they need to be shown the door. That feeling doesn't seem to be the, to be there on the doorsteps right now. Certainly not from what I saw last night. All right, John. Great to have your thoughts on all of this today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's John Iveson of the National Post. Why is it that when the cost of living goes up, when inflation goes up, the only people that suffer are people and workers and families? Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun argues the cost of living must be center stage. The Sun writes, Interest rates are on the rise. The stock market is acting like a yo-yo some weeks, and most analysts will tell you it's not going to get better anytime soon. Sadly, our political class just isn't talking about it. Or, to the degree that they are, they are not talking about it enough. The cost of living in Canada must be center for all national conversations and all politicians right now. If working people aren't able to put food on the table, everything is secondary to that. In the Toronto Star, Bruce Arthur argues Pierre Poilievre has been pushing conspiratorial theories for much of the pandemic, and he's still doing it. Arthur writes, In response to a global financial challenge, Poilievre blames domestic spending and pitches Bitcoin. If your goal is to hammer freedom to an audience that found wearing masks was an imposition and thinks that vaccines were a conspiracy, then Bitcoin is just another aspirational buzzword that signifies the world doesn't have to work the way you're told it does. He's been pumping conspiratorial theories about gatekeepers for much of the pandemic. He's still doing it. He'll say just about anything, and that opens the door to all kinds of conspiracies, all kinds of anger, all kinds of extremism. At iPolitics, Graham Thompson argues, Jason Kenney is taking a victory lap while the race is still underway. Thompson writes, No matter what happens in Jason Kenney's leadership vote next week, he's declaring a victory now. Not in the leadership review, but in a legal opinion from the Alberta Court of Appeal declaring the federal government's Environmental Impact Assessment Act unconstitutional. It doesn't matter that the opinion is non-binding. It doesn't matter that the federal law still stands. Kenny is interested in politics, not facts. The legal brief might have all the bite of a paper tiger, but Kenny will unleash it against his opponents, be they the NDP opposition or mutinous MLAs within his own caucus. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will participate virtually in the Global COVID-19 Summit, co-hosted by Belize, Germany, Indonesia, Senegal, and the United States of America. The Prime Minister will speak with the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, 
and hold a bilateral meeting with the Prime Minister of Latvia, and then meet with the Premier of Nunavut, and meet with recipients of the INSPIRE Awards. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will attend question period. She will also speak at the TRIZUB Awards, which recognize those who have worked in support of Ukraine, the Ukrainian-Canadian community, and Canada. In Cornerbrook, Newfoundland and Labrador, Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray and Rural Economic Development Minister Goody Hutchings will announce the plan for moving forward upon receipt of the Atlantic Seal Science Task Team Report. And to honor Her Royal Highness Princess Marguerite of the Netherlands on her visit to Canada, the National Capital Commission will hold a ceremonial planting of a new tulip bed at Stornoway. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, May the 12th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.